Hello, and thank you for joining us for another episode of Jackman Radio. I'm your host, Mike Jackman, and today I'm very excited to be joined by a researcher, author, professor, and film historian, um, uh, Mr. Joseph McBride. How are you today, Mr. McBride? Doing great. Good to be with you, Mike. I appreciate it. Yes, absolutely. And I just want to re read a little blurb here from the Amazon page about your new book, just to give our viewers an idea. In 1963, President John F. Kennedy was killed in a coup d'etat. Ever since then, it has been virtually taboo in American mainstream media to report this basic truth. Print and television news reporters and historians spread the government's lies and attack people they label conspiracy theorists rather than investigating the case themselves. Joseph McBride, author of Into the Nightmare, My Search for the Killers of President John F. Kennedy and Officer J.D. Tippett, offers a deep analysis of this dereliction of journalistic duty. Political Truth, the Media and the Assassination of President Kennedy, which is uh, Joseph's recent book from last December, I believe, assimilates a wealth of media disinformation and contrastingly accurate investigations by independent researchers, reporters, and filmmakers. McBride's provocative study traces how the false reporting of the assassination has led to today's poisonous political divide over the meaning of historical reality. So uh, quite a bit to unpack there, but um, I have not read that book yet, but I wanted to promote that briefly. And um, I did read Into the Nightmare, which actually took me many months to read. And uh, so so you, you spent 34 years working on that book? Is that accurate? Yeah, well, I, um, I began my what I call in-depth serious research on the case in 1982. And the book came out, Into the Nightmare, in 2013. So it took 31 years. And uh, along the way, I was thinking of doing a chapter on media on how they distort the facts about the assassination. And I kept thinking, you know, it's, it's too big a topic, you know, for one chapter. It deserves a whole book. So I, I did some work on it in the 90s and, and put, put it aside. And I went back to it um, in the last couple of years and wrote Political Truth, the Media and the Assassination of President Kennedy. Um, I, I did have a chapter in Into the Nightmare on the what I call the four-day television docudrama that, that weekend. Um, which, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a critic of the media and a, and a film scholar, so but I've worked in television and films as a screenwriter, so I'm, I'm very keenly interested in the role of the media in spreading propaganda. And that weekend, first you have this shocking development, uh, president murdered, officer Tippett murdered, then the suspect is brought in, graded before the cameras, and basically tried on television this was an eye-opener to me as a 16-year-old kid because I, I always thought we had due process and you're innocent until proven guilty, and, and this showed me that the media try and convict people on television. And um, then you have um, the the execution live on TV, and then you have the uh, alleged uh, closure, the third act, if you will, on, on uh, Sunday night, you know, Henry Wade, the DA, reading all the charges against him, a lot of which were uh, just wrong. And then on Monday, you have the funeral, which is this grand uh, spectacle that uh, was very moving, but it had the effect of kind of tranquilizing the country. And, and uh, in, in some countries, if the leader is killed, people go out on the streets and they demand answers, and, and they may uh, <clears throat> overthrow the, 
the new government and all kinds of things happened, but it didn't happen here because uh, TV made people stay at home. 93% of the sets were being used that, that day, which was a record. And um, it was a form of tranquilization. And then um, I was always really bothered by something Dan Rather said. He was one of the reporters who made his career on the assassination and very suspect figure, in my opinion. Um, he said the day that he always thinks about is the Tuesday, November 26th, when America went back to work and basically life resumed its normal functions. And I, on the contrary, re remember that day vividly as uh, extraordinarily bleak. I went back to school and I, I felt kind of unmoored. You know, I'd worked for Kennedy in his 1960 Wisconsin presidential primary campaign. And he had influenced me. I wanted to go into politics, and that, that idea was shattered when my candidate was murdered and the government didn't solve the crime. Um, and, you know, so th that was not a happy day, and it did not mean that everything is back to normal. It was the opposite. But I've actually been studying the assassination from way back. Uh, as I say, I worked for him in 1960, and I got to meet him twice during the campaign, very close up. Met him once when he was president. Um, and uh, I, I was struck by his lack of security at these two uh, in Wisconsin. One was two blocks from our house. They held a rally. My mother was a, a prominent figure in the Wisconsin Democratic Party, Marion Dunn McBride, and she set up a Kids for Kennedy rally. He came to the Wauwatosa City Hall, and it was a small noonday crowd with uh, mothers and kids, and uh, it was so small that we got to mingle with him and chat with him, and it was really uh, wonderful. But I noticed he came in with, um, I think it was two people. Uh, one was a, re a reporter. It could have been Theodore White who wrote The Making of the President because not too many reporters were trailing, and it's not like today. And one aide, and that was it. And he was, you know, standing around talking, we were talking to him. One of my little brothers kept crawling under his legs and coming back to his legs to shake his hand again. Wow. He was very approachable. And then I met him in, uh, four days later, April 3rd, 1960, the big rally in the campaign. There's a classic documentary called Primary, which I recommend to people. That that's the centerpiece of the documentary, this big rally with 3,000 people in Milwaukee. And uh, I got to stand in line and, and talk to him, get his autograph, and um, uh, he was he had no visible security except if you look at the film there's a policeman standing nearby and that's about it but he was very exposed to the public and i think i was concerned about that because uh i was a history uh, uh buff i guess you call it as a kid and i read Huey bauman's book secret service chief he was the previous secret service chief uh, describing in detail the threats and dangers to the president how they tried to control them and he had kind of warnings that were prescient, uh, that were not followed in Dallas, uh, security measures. So I wrote a short story about Kennedy's assassination in October 1961 for my high school English class in Milwaukee. And it was called The Plot Against the Country. And it's really juvenilia, but I stole the plot from the Superman comic about how he was killed uh, licking a stamp that had poison under it. They tried that with Superman with kryptonite, but uh, the parts that I got right where I realized it would be a plot and, um, you know, it, it requires a lot of doing 
this they killed him in this story in his office uh, but i also wrote about the autopsy and questions surrounding how did how did they do it etc so you know in some ways i was kind of alert to what might happen and wow. that's that, eerie <laughs> Two years before the assassination, I was concerned about it. So when it when it happened, I was not completely surprised. Um, there was I was in the cafeteria line at Marquette University High School, and the guy at the counter said, "Did you hear Kennedy was shot?" And I laughed, you know, reflexively because I thought he was kidding. And then I, I realized he wasn't kidding. So I spun around and ran out the door. Only kid at the school to do that. I ran two blocks to a. a pharmacy where there was a uh, radio playing that I knew it was always on. And I stood there with a small group of people and listening to the news from 1240 onward. <clears throat> the assassination happened at 1230 Central Time. And, um, you know, I listened as they, the first reports came in and they, they said the radio reports from the network said that he was shot from the front from either the railroad bridge or the hill in front of him, which we now call the Grassy Knoll, as it was dubbed later in the day. And then this this is from 1240 to one o'clock. And at one o'clock, they started saying the shots all came from behind from this building called the Texas School Book Depository. Hmm. And I was already a journalist. I, I sold my first article in 1960. I was the editor of my uh, school news magazine and my parents were journalists. So I, I smelled a rat right away because when you when they change the story like that without expl explanation, something is wrong. Um, you know, if they had given a credible explanation of why they were wrong about the shots from the front, and uh, when it, when they didn't do that. They just said shots all came from behind. So they changed the, the direction of the shots. And so um, by the end of the day, I was not believing the official case. I watched the live coverage of Oswald being hauled back and forth in the police station and uh, he's, I saw him say live on TV I'm just a patsy at 7.55 p.m. and I, I began believing him and uh, uh, they weren't giving us much in the way to go on in terms of evidence and when he had his midnight press conference I, I really uh, thought well this guy's not guilty uh, um, it was, he said I, I, he, act, he actually said I don't know uh, somebody said you're, you're charged with killing the president. He said he was surprised. I, I've not been told that, but uh, a reporter in the hall asked me that question. And I talked to Jim LaBelle, the detective who was in charge of the Tippett case, and he was involved in interrogating Oswald. And he said Oswald was telling the truth. They hadn't charged him yet with the murder of the president, only wow. the murder of the policeman. And um, LaBelle and D.A. Henry Wade, who I also interviewed for Into the Nightmare, indicated to me that, um, as Lavelle said, Captain Will Fritz, the head of homicide, told told him, let's wrap it up, uh, get him for the Tippett murder, because we don't really have evidence for, you know, enough evidence on the presidential shooting. So it's no coincidence he was charged first with the Tippett murder. And I found an FBI document that people had overlooked that said he was never even arraigned for murdering the president, only for killing Tippett. They did charge him with uh, the assassination in the wee hours of the morning, but um, they really didn't have any evidence. Oswald told his brother, Robert, when he came to see him at the jail, he said, don't believe all this so-called evidence, which I think is a key comment. And uh, so they were trying to find anything they could, but 
you know, the, the Tippett case was ignored for a long time. The Warren, Warren Commission barely was interested in it. And um, there was a fellow named Gary Muir who published a short, but he actually didn't publish. It was an unpublished short uh, monograph in 1971 about the murder of Tippett. It's, it's quite good in its analysis. It, you can find it online, but he never got it published. And that was about it for the Tippett murder. And so I thought, here's a case that obviously is related in some way, and, but it hasn't been studied carefully. And people just sort of assume Oswald did it. And it's sort of backward logic that they kind of sold the idea that he, here's a guy who killed a cop fleeing from justice. And, uh, you know, that proves that he killed President Kennedy. Well, it doesn't prove that he killed the president, even if he killed the cop, which I don't think he did. Um, it, it could have been unrelated or it could have been, you know, I mean, a different scenario. And uh, <clears throat> but that that helped convince people that, he, you know, he's a desperate cop killer. And, and uh, anyway, I went into that. We could talk more about that. And uh, so Penn Jones Jr. was kind of my mentor. He was a, a feisty, independent newspaper editor and publisher in Midlothian, Texas, which is about 20 miles from Dallas. He had his own printing press. Somebody once said, you don't have freedom of the press in America unless you own the printing press. <laughs> and Penn owned a little printing press. He took me to his uh, <clears throat> had a few employees and they put out this little paper and he had a column and <clears throat> he broke a lot of the leads in the Kennedy case. Um, he said, I didn't, I didn't believe it was a conspiracy until Sunday night. That's how naive I was. He, said, but <laughs> he kept, kept up this drumbeat and he was, to me, is the epitome of, uh, you know, what we want out of journalism, you know, a small town editor who's got integrity and is indefatigable and he told me and he told other researchers, he said, find some area of the case that's been neglected and research the hell out of it. And so I thought, well, the Tippett case, that's been neglected. I'll research the hell out of, out of it, which I did. It was took a long time, but I think I advanced our knowledge of what happened with Tippett. We could talk about that, too. Yeah, I mean, it is kind of confusing, I think, for a lot of people because of the timelines and because of... Uh, you know, the eyewitness reports like uh, Aquila Clemens saying that essentially she saw a, a uh, more of a built stocky person and maybe two men fleeing from the scene. And she was on her porch, I think, one of the closest witnesses other than the guy who was, I think, in his truck right on the street. And uh, but but I really I wanted to focus on that today because I do think it's important. Um, you know, some would call it a, a tertiary aspect of the assassination. But I really think a lot of the truth and a lot of the real details are in the smaller uh, secondary um, areas of the assassination. Like, for example, I read recently that the fellow that drove Oswald to the depository, Buell uh, Frazier, um, when he had Oswald at his house to go to the depository that day, um, his mother was looking at him and Oswald from her kitchen, and she didn't see any parcel or gun or, any, or anything that could have been construed as a gun. And, you know, neither did his sister. So if Oswald didn't bring the gun to the depository that day, how did a gun get there? And, um, of course, there's all kinds of inconsistencies with what kind of gun it was and how it got there. And um, and then, you know, you have an FBI man uh, kind of going around Dallas, uh, you know, early on. And they talk to one of the supervisors who worked at the depository when Oswald shows up with Frazier. And he doesn't see any kind of package or anything big enough to be a gun. So that little detail alone just kind of blows 
a, a yeah. lot of the official story out of the water. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, many problems with the alleged gun. Um, first of all, they reported it was a Mauser. And there was uh, a deputy sheriff who, who actually had run a sporting goods store. He was an expert on guns. He identified it as a Mauser as well as uh, another uh, detective. And um, Henry Wade, the DA, called it a Mauser. And uh, actually, there were uh, several guns floating around the depository. Uh, you can see in news footage, the guns look different from the Mandelker Carcano that they claim to have found. And there was also a, a, a Mauser brought to the depository on November 20th by a man named Warren Castor, who worked for the Texas School, School Book Depository. And he bought this gun as a present for somebody. And he was showing it to the employees on November 20th, which is odd. And um, But John Armstrong wrote a very good book uh, called Harvey and Lee, which is about uh, two Oswalds. And you know, if, if some of this stuff had been known on the day of the shooting or the day after, it would have been really hard for us to understand that there were two guys using the identity of Oswald. And I was kind of agnostic on that for a long time. And, and Armstrong proved it to me because from early on, people thought, well, wait a second, he's reported to be in two places at the same time. You know, credible witnesses said he was here and that he was in a different city. And there are many such reports. And a guy named Richard Popkin wrote a book early on called the second Oswald, he didn't have all the resources that Armstrong devoted. Armstrong was um, uh, is a wealthy real estate guy, and he had the the, uh, the means to spend 10 years researching the case. This guy really did amazingly exhaustive research. And basically, he, he has a chapter on the gun and a chapter on the uh, revolver that Oswald allegedly used to shoot Tippett. He basically proved that there's no evidence that Oswald ever own those two weapons. There are many anomalies in the records of guns being you know, tracked. And uh, so the Mandelker Carcano was obviously a plant. Also, it's a terrible weapon, cheap uh, Italian war surplus weapon. It was called the humanitarian rifle by Italian soldiers because it did, never killed anybody. You know, <laughs> and it was misaligned. The sight was misaligned. It was jammed, you know, it was uh, you know, hard to operate, etc. Um, you know, if uh, Oswald was not a great marksman, he had kind of average scores in the Marines. Um, but also, nobody's been able to place him in the six-four window. Um, and they admitted that during that weekend, uh, Chief Curry of the Dallas Police Department said, uh, uh, "If we can put the gun in his hands, we can tell the case." Which is an interesting way to phrase it, put the gun in his hands. And there is a report from the mortician in Fort Worth who handled the body uh, for burial. He said that when Oswald was in the uh, mortuary there at the cemetery, uh, two FBI guys came in and told him to leave. And they went in the uh, mortuary for a while. And uh, they came out and Oswald's uh, hands were full of ink. He had to wash ink off his hands. And they allegedly were getting fingerprints, but um, it, it is thought that uh, they, they may have brought the Mandelker Carcano there to put his prints on the rifle, as as Curry said. You know, uh, so there are a lot of men. There's so so much manufactured evidence in this case. One of the things is it's good training for a uh, a researcher is to really keep an open mind about every single piece of so-called evidence because 
you can't take anything at face value. That's a big mistake if you do that because there are so many problems with the physical evidence and some and eyewitness evidence. In some cases, it's contradictory, et cetera. And you have to really study it from every angle. I did a biography of Frank Capra, the great movie director, and spent seven years on that. And um, he had lied thoroughly in his autobiography, except he reported his date of birth correctly and the date the ship left uh, Naples for the United States. Those two things checked out. Nothing else was true. Uh, so wow. it was good, good training for me. I reinvented the wheel of Capra scholarship because I realized I had to, you know, prove it all. And there is a long paper trail on all of us, I discovered, that this is long before the internet. Um, <clears throat> we leave a trail of records and documents and things. And, and, and I, you know, I dotted every I across every T in that case and found out almost everything there was to know about him. Um, and it was, it's good, good discipline. And I, I followed that in the Kennedy case, the Tippett case. It's, uh, it's, they're extraordinarily complex. And the record was muddied on, on purpose by the authorities to um, cause confusion, you know. There's a fellow, Vincent Salandria, who died recently, was an early researcher, and he thought we had been systematically misled into studying the micro evidence and, and not the big picture. You know, we were distracted by all the confusing evidence. Uh, and I kind of half agree because obviously micro evidence is really important because that's how you prove a case. But um, you can get lost in that and not look at the bigger picture. You know, how is this pulled off and who did it? And I mean, one discovery I made, uh, I'm not the first one who said that Oswald may have been an FBI informant, which I believe, but I turned up some information that he may have met with the FBI three times that November before the assassination. And it is known that he went to the Dallas FBI office around November 12th to deliver some kind of a letter, printed message. Um, they claimed the message said, if you don't stop harassing my wife, I'm going to blow up the FBI office. But <clears throat> that message was destroyed by the FBI and uh, shortly after Oswald was killed. So we don't really know what it said. Was that but to Hosty, Agent Hosty? Agent Hosty was, he was the recipient of it. And, and Gordon Shanklin, the head of the office, said, take this and destroy it. So he flushed it down a toilet. Um, but the Dallas Morning News, the day Oswald was shot in the paper, which went out obviously before Oswald was shot, it said he had met with the FBI on November 16th as well. And then Henry Wade, who's a former FBI man, told me that he said Oswald met with the FBI uh, a, a day or two before the assassination. So that's if, if that's all correct, that's three meetings. So I think he was a, an FBI informant who was infiltrating the plot against Kennedy, and he didn't realize he was being set up as the patsy. And he had also worked clearly for the CIA when he had this uh, alleged defection to Russia. He was a false defector. They had a false defector program to go over there and try to spy on, on what the Soviets were doing, and the Soviets were onto it, and they were very suspicious. Uh, but that was a CIA, CIA operation. He, he was a Marine veteran, and um, he may have been working for Office of Naval Intelligence as well. And uh, um, CIA created what's called a legend around him, all kinds of you know, stories that 
later could be used to incriminate somebody and Armstrong and other people have gone into great detail in that too, like his alleged trip to Mexico City, which I don't think happened. And, uh, but they, it, with suspicious haste on the day Kennedy was killed, they released to the press all kinds of incriminating information on Oswald through compliant reporters. And that's part of the story of political truth, the book I wrote recently about how the media is, are so corrupt, the mainstream media, that they're in bed with the CIA. <clears throat> uh, Carl Bernstein of Woodward Bernstein fame wrote a terrific piece in <clears throat> Rolling Stone in 1977, and you can read it on his website. It's about the CIA's infiltration of the media, and he wrote that there were about 400 members of the media at that time working for the CIA, either CIA people undercover or reporters who were helping the CIA and doing their bidding. And, uh, it's it's very pervasive and it, it still goes on and um, you know they've infiltrated the media and so that day uh, there was a CIA connected uh, journalist in in Florida called Cal uh, Hendricks who leaked all kinds of this information to the press. By the end of the day, we we supposedly knew a lot about Oswald's alleged communist leanings and I don't think he was. A genuine communist. I think he, he masqueraded as one, but they set him up as a, a crazy communist, defector, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, so it's a, it's a very complex case, and that's why it took me 31 years to write that book. And I was researching the. Um, I started basically, you know, when he was shot. I started reading the material, and I was skeptical. But when the Warren report came out in 64, like a lot of people, I was sort of convinced. I thought, okay, well, they must have wrapped it up. And then uh, dissenting books began coming out in 66. And I was uh, reading about it. And by uh, the end of 66, I wrote a letter to the local newspaper in Madison, Wisconsin, where I was a student. And I said, I, I don't know what to believe in this case anymore. Uh, you know, I, my uh, faith in the system was pretty well shattered by that time. And, uh, but I didn't seriously begin researching it until the 70s. Uh, Watergate helped spur me to do it because here's a bona fide conspiracy everybody knows there's a conspiracy of some kind although i think the whole truth about that didn't come out at the time either but um you know it revealed and then the church committee revealed a lot of things about foreign leaders who we were helping to assassinate <clears throat> and all this came out and i began thinking of the kennedy assassination again in a new light and i started reading the books and, but it wasn't until 82 that i, I really decided to go ahead, you know, full bore. And, and I've been researching it every day since then. I read all the new books and I've, many documents have come out, millions of pages. You know, I used to have to go to the National Archives in Washington to, to uh, read and Xerox documents before um, a lot of them were put online. Um, but the, the uh, JFK Records Act, which was passed in the wake of Oliver Stone's film, JFK, at the end of the film, it said, why are all these many, many records still classified in this crime if, if a lone nut killed Kennedy with no family? Right. Why keep all these documents secret? And so the Congress was, was shamed into passing a law that President George W. George H. W. Bush reluctantly signed into law and created the Assassination Records Review Board. And they've released millions of pages of documents and they put them online, although it's kind of hodgepodge, it's hard, hard to track them. But um, 
there are still something like 15,000 documents classified. And next month, December, President Biden has to make another decision about whether to release these things. And uh, the law has been violated because um, the law said within 25 years, everything needs to be released with a few exceptions like um, sources and methods being disclosed. Although, you know, uh, if they disclose sources and methods that exist in 63, such as uh, surveillance cameras outside the Cuban embassy in Mexico City, that's not really going to jeopardize anything today. But right. also the names of agents and people like that could be uh, withheld because some people have their lives in jeopardy. There are very few exceptions like that. And tax records are still secret Oswald's tax records. Yeah, that, I find that to be very strange. And and um, was was a, was her name Ann Goodpaster who worked for the CIA who handled their payroll and remember seeing him or, or, or handling payment for him or something? I forget what the specific information is on that. But well, I, uh, recently there was a woman who was researching uh, Betsy Wolf at the House Select Committee on Assassinations uh, did some research and she found out that um, it, it, while he was still in the Marine Corps, uh, for one whole quarter, he wasn't paid by the Marine Corps, which suggests he was getting paid by somebody else. So we really don't know uh, his sources of income. He had rather meager income, but um, intelligence agencies were, were uh, involved with him and, and tracking him, and they had agents assigned to him, et cetera. And, uh, but, you know, tax records are confidential unless the president, I believe, declassifies them for a good reason. Uh, so we don't really know that. But uh, many of the documents, most of the documents that are still classified are CIA documents. And president Trump, um, a couple of years ago, said he was going to release all the documents. And then a day before, the CIA and the FBI got to him and, and persuaded him, you know, wonder how they persuaded him not to release most of the documents, which violated that law. Although the agencies in the law can object to things and then it's sent to the president for a final decision. Mm -hmm. But he can down the road to Biden, who released some documents, but he withheld others and he kicked the can further down the road, which is really stretching the intent of the law. But next month he has to make a decision. But, you know, it really, anybody who thinks Oswald was a loan operator and not uh, shot Kennedy for whatever reason, Warren Commission could never really come up with a motive. Um, they should be seriously asking themselves, uh, how come all these records are secret if, if there's just some crazy guy doing it on his own? Um, you know, it, it, it shows that the government is hiding things. And, and many things have come out in recent years. So, you know, um, the research community is very active in pursuing leads, and we have to keep an open mind about, you know, revising our theories if, if new evidence comes up. Yeah, oh, for sure. Yeah, because things can change with, with uh, you know, in light of new information coming out and uh, other documents. I think the entire, there's an entire report on George Joannides. I think the, the whole thing is blacked out. Uh, yeah. I, I'm interested in seeing that one come out and uh, his time in uh, Florida and op operating that, you know, station and being involved with those, you know, Cuban and anti-Cuban groups. I mean, I think that's an interesting piece of the puzzle. But um, getting back to the Tippett uh, angle, um, so so Oswald is is you know 
an APB goes out for a description that roughly matches his not long after the shooting, right? And the official story says, you know, he's he left his he went back to his boarding house, uh, you know, got his gun, put on a different jacket, is walking down the street, and then is is approached or uh, you know t- allegedly Tippett sees him and it matches the description and then that's why he shot him. Um, although some witnesses said, "Oh, it looked like they were having a friendly discussion." So, what's what's kind of the official version of that? And then what did what are some of the things you discovered that were just huge an- anomalies and really yeah. kind of give credence to that not really being what happened. Yeah, the official story is uh, full of monstrous things. Uh, he, he left downtown soon after the shooting and allegedly got on a bus. And then he, I mean, he tried to get a cab. <clears throat> and then a, an old lady said she wanted the cab and he graciously let her have the cab, which is kind of <laughs> awkward. Here the Just after shooting the president, here, you take the cab. I'm, I'm good. I got time. Yeah, then he got in a bus. Uh, the bus got stalled in traffic, and he got out. And, but anyway, he found a cabin and made his way to Oak Cliff, which is uh, there's a viaduct that takes you right from downtown. If you're in Oak Cliff, you can see the downtown area at the end of the viaduct. And he goes to his rooming house, which is near the end of the viaduct. And uh, uh, his housekeeper said he was in his room for about five minutes. And uh, they claim he, he went there to get a gun and change clothing. And... Uh, he came out, and this was around one o'clock, and she said she saw him standing at the corner for a few minutes as if waiting for somebody, and then he, he, he left. And the Warren Commission claimed Tippett was shot around 1.15, which would have given Oswald time to walk nine-tenths of a mile to the Tippett murder scene. But if, if he, um, well, first of all, the shooting time was not 1.15. You can establish that various ways. Um, I interviewed T.F. Boley, who was arrived at the scene, and he looked at his watch. It was 1.10, and he was driving past, and he stopped, and he saw some commotion around a police car, and he saw the officer lying on the street. And he walked over and tried to help, and it was 1.10. And then there was a woman, Helen Markham, who was the main witness for the Warren Commission, who was very confused and very frightened. And uh, one of the Warren uh, staffers called her an utter screwball, but she said it happened in 106. And the interesting thing about her, she was walking from her residence to the bus of uh, three three blocks away to Jefferson Boulevard, which is the main drag there. Tippett was shot on Parallel Street, um, 10th Street. But she, she had to catch her bus at 112 to get downtown to work as a waitress. And if, you're, if you have a job, you don't want to miss the bus. So she would leave home around uh, you know, 106 to walk to the bus stop. And she claimed she saw uh, the shooting. And uh, uh, But Tippett, his last phone call to the police was at 108. And they didn't answer. There were a lot of you know traffic on the radio. And, and they tried to rouse him at 109, and he didn't answer. So um, the best estimate of when he was shot was 108 or 109. And if Oswald was standing outside his rooming house at 103 or 104, it doesn't give him time to, to get to the scene. Of, uh, you know, I've walked that route numerous times. It takes about eight or 10 minutes to walk there at a fast clip. If you're running, 
maybe you could make it a little faster, but nobody saw him walking or running. And there were a number of things that happened during that period. Um, uh, there was, Tippett was behaving strangely. He was, he was out of his district and he was seen at 1245, 15 minutes after the assassination, sitting in his squad car at a gas station <clears throat> overlooking the viaduct. And he was obviously watching the vehicles coming from downtown. And five people saw him there who recognized him. And then a bus went by and there was no Oswald on the bus and there were no cab came by, you know, at that particular time. So Os a Tippett took off at a high rate of speed and then went to some other location. He was driving around Oak Cliff uh, rather frantically. And he pulled over a car on 10th Street of a fellow named Andrews who was driving a car. And Tippett pulled a squad car in front of this guy and ran over and opened the back door and looked in the back seat and there was nobody there. And uh, so he went back in his car and didn't say anything. But the, the man saw the name Tippett on his uh chest and uh, he was looking for somebody in the back seat <clears throat> and uh, also in that time period Tippett ran into a record store on uh, Jefferson Boulevard a few blocks from where he would be shot and he was known to the people in that record store he would come in and buy country western records and things and there was a telephone there and it's still there and he came in and uh, grabbed the phone and uh, there were witnesses who knew him and saw him and he dialed some number and didn't say anything, and it's not clear if he didn't get party on the phone or whether he, he was frustrated. So he slammed on the phone, he ran out the door, and they saw last saw him driving back toward 10th Street, and that, that's the last sighting of him before he was shot. But what I found out that was particularly valuable and that advanced the case, um, there was a strange uh, message on the police radio um, about 12.45 saying, calling Tippett and another officer saying, you will be at large for any emergency that comes in, which is kind of a, as Sylvia Marr, who wrote the best book on the case, Accessories After the Fact, she said that's kind of a generic uh, response to any police officer in a crisis, you'll be at large for any emergency. Why did they single him out? It was some kind of coded message. And um, it turned out, well, I interviewed Tippett's father, Edgar Lee Tippett, who was 90 years old, very lively, very spry. He was working as a farmer in East Texas. I drove all the way out there to see him. And nice old man, um, very lucid, um, sharp, and had a long interview with him. And he, he, he said a number of things that were interesting. He said, uh, <clears throat> for one thing, his son was a tremendous shot, he told me. He said they would go out hunting for, for food, you know. And... Uh, he said one time J.D. saw a bird up in a tree like, you know, 100 yards away and he fired his rifle and shot, shot the bird down. It was just a great shot. That contradicts the police records. There are very few records of Tippett's uh, shooting prowess, which uh, is odd because if you're a policeman, you have to periodically uh, have your uh, shooting checked. And the records indicate he was a mediocre shot, but here his father is saying he's a great shot. Uh, but anyway, the father also said that um, shortly after the assassination, he spoke to Marie Tippett, the officer's widow, and she said an officer came to her house to explain what happened to her husband. 
And this officer, who I later identified as William Menzel, who was the guy assigned to the district in which Tippett was shot, uh, said that he and Tippett were ordered to search for Oswald in Oak Cliff soon after the assassination. And uh, he didn't say what they were supposed to do when they caught him. And he said, I got into a traffic accident, unfortunately, and JD made it to the scene of, and, and got shot. He felt bad about it. And you can see a picture of him standing guard at the coffin that night. And, um, you know, it's strange. First of all, the Dallas police claimed they didn't know who Oswald was until they arrested him at 1.52 p.m. at the theater nearby. And uh, they, they really didn't know who he was until 2.10 when they took him downtown because he had two sets of identification on him. He had, he had an uh, alias. So they knew... Um, at around 12.45 at, at, at the latest, who Oswald was and where he lived at Oak Cliff, they'll find this guy. And, you know, he's obviously designated as a suspect at that time, which there's no real reason. To, that APV report you, you mentioned uh, really didn't um, uh, describe him clearly. It said he was 30 years old and I think 165 pounds. He was actually a lot thinner and he was only 24. He had sort of balding hair, which could be mistaken for a little older man, but it, it also was a generic description that probably fit thousands of people walking around the streets that day. And it also said he's carrying a rifle. And, you know, you see a guy carrying a rifle right after the presidential assassination, you might want to stop him. But Oswald was certainly not carrying a rifle. So that's unlikely that Tippett pulled him over for that reason. But I, I checked and Mensel claimed to the... Um, uh, I guess it was the House Select Committee that he was having lunch at a cafeteria nearby, and then he heard the report of the uh, assassination on the radio and dashed out, which doesn't comport with his the story he told Mrs. Tippett. Uh, but I found a record of a of an accident, car accident, about two blocks from the Tippett shooting scene, and I think it was 1:17 p.m. Uh, Mensel was sent to, the, to, to this minor traffic accident, fender bender, and he looked at it and he cleared the scene two minutes later. Now, even if it's a minor fender bender, it's hard to believe the officer would clear the scene two minutes later. He would take down names and addresses and, and all that kind of stuff, but he took off. So there was a traffic accident nearby, and I wonder if actually Mensel had that accident, as he told Mrs. Tippett. You know, he's racing around and bumps into a car and Anyway, so um, that casts a very different light on what Tippett was doing, and it helps explain why he was racing around, uh, stopping a car, and, and going into a uh, record store trying for help. You know, there were also other reports of him using pay phones around that time. <clears throat> if he was on the up and up, he could use the police radio to call the dispatch. But if you're on the, uh, you know, pay phone, it's a good way to disguise whatever you're doing, and he may have been saying, I can't find Oswald or getting further orders. And very soon after that, he gets killed. So I think Tippett drove into an ambush that the police facilitated. And I, I could explain why. But first of all, the, the Tippett shooting scene is very confusing. It's like Rashomon, the Japanese film, where things are seen from different angles. There were about 20 people who uh, were around that scene uh, shortly at the time or shortly thereafter. And they, they really give very contradictory evidence. Um, about 10 of them 
identified Oswald as the shooter. About 10 wouldn't identify him. Some people like Mrs. Clemens, who was uh, a domestic who worked nearby, and she heard the shots and came out onto the porch. She saw two men there. One was stocky, as you said, and uh, Oswald certainly was not stocky. And the other guy was a tall, thin guy. And the two guys were, one, one guy waved to the other one to go on and they went off in different directions. Hmm. And um, other people said they saw two men. Somebody saw a car, a guy in a car drive off. And uh, there were those kind of witnesses. And then the ones who identified Oswald, a lot of them had, you know, suspicious identifications. For example, um, the guy you mentioned who was closest to the shooting, Domingo Benavides, was an auto mechanic who was driving a pickup truck uh, up the street in the opposite direction. And he saw the shooting and he pulled over to the curb because he was worried about you know getting hit and he said he waited for several minutes that could have been an exaggeration and peeked out over the thing and he claimed he saw somebody running away but he couldn't identify the shooter as oswald he told the police so they never brought him to a lineup and they never really even interviewed him and three years later cbs which is one of the leading propaganda outlets eating as small stories on the assassination i studied them at length and about political truth um, they, they they've done a series of elaborate reports purporting to uh, close the book on the assassination they interviewed a lot of witnesses in, in uh, 66 including Benavides and he's, he then identified also identified him three years later you know which mm -hmm. and there was another guy Warren Reynolds was a used car salesman in, in a car lot about two blocks away <clears throat> and when he heard the shooting he went out and, and looked and he saw somebody running away and couldn't identify him as Oswald. And uh, so they didn't, you know, people wouldn't identify it and the police basically ignored them. But then uh, uh, the FBI came to see Reynolds about two months later and he said, I can't, you know, I can't identify Oswald. And then the next day, I believe it was, he got shot in the head by an intruder in the, uh, in the, in the car lot. He miraculously survived, and then he said, "Oh yeah, it was Oswald." You know, he saw the yeah. <laughs> story here, and there were a lot of anomalies like that. And I kind of suspect there. You know, I spent an awful lot of time trying to reconcile this stuff. Sometimes you can't totally reconcile these confusing scenes. There was a fellow named Jerry Rose who wrote in a um, assassination journal a few, some years ago. He had a, a very interesting theory that. <clears throat> he felt that Jack Ruby might have helped stage the Tippett murder because a lot of the people who were there had connections with Ruby. Like Helen Markham, the waitress, uh, Ruby would come into her uh, diner at, uh, almost every night and she knew him. And uh, Didn't he have a house nearby too, near the neighborhood? Yeah, Oswald, you know, uh, allegedly, I think Oswald maybe went straight to the theater, but if you believe the official story, the route he was taking would take him to Jack Ruby's apartment house, uh, hmm. not far away, <clears throat> which raised a lot of suspicions. And there, there are unconfirmed reports of Ruby and Oswald near each other. I was never able to prove that. But um, T.F. Bowley, the fellow I interviewed, who was the only person who looked at his watch, told me he knew Jack Ruby. Uh, everybody knew Jack Ruby. He was the character around. <laughs> what he the only thing he didn't tell me, and this came out later, 
he got an award from the city of Dallas a few years ago. Um, he told me it was when I interviewed him, it was the first interview he had ever given, except for the uh, he talked to the FBI. Um, but he was very open, except he didn't tell me that he had actually worked for Jack Ruby at another club that Ruby ran. He was a bouncer at this club for a few years, and his wife knew Ruby, and he, he withheld that information from me. And I think that's why he probably didn't seek public attention for a long time, but he, he withheld that from me. But um, it's interesting, you know, but um, Rose felt that Ruby had populated the scene with witnesses who would uh, support his view. And Ruby might have been there. He might have been the stocky guy. Ruby was a short, stocky guy. He fits Mrs. Clemens' description. Uh, and there were other people who saw somebody like that there. Um, and then Ruby was seen at Parkland Hospital uh, not too long after that by Seth Cantor, who was a very reputable reporter who knew Ruby and later wrote a book about him. And Ruby uh, grabbed him and said, should I close my nightclubs tonight? Which Cantor said, oh yeah, sure. And he thought there was kind of an odd request, but he, he could have gotten from the tepid shooting scene to the hospital in time. The Warren Commission denied that Ruby was at the hospital. They said Seth Cantor was mistaken. Well, Cantor was a very good journalist and wrote about it. His, his notes are in the Warren volumes. So they discounted this important witness. Um, but uh, some, some of the witnesses who were connected with Ruby gave information that was not helpful to uh, the official case. And this is Markham. <clears throat> with her confused testimony and, and the 106 time frame and uh, Boley arriving at 110. So if they were set up by Ruby, uh, maybe they weren't, but um, they gave information that was not compatible with the, the official story. So it is kind of a confusing scene and, uh, uh, you know, contradictions, witnesses, you know, there is a, there is a, Theory well known that eyewitnesses are you know not always trustworthy because memory plays tricks on you and you can change your your views for one reason or another intimidation or or sometimes people their memory gets corrupted by reading about the case in, in the papers and stuff and um, uh, Emil D'Antonio, a great documentary filmmaker who I knew, made a film Rush to Judgment with Mark Lane based on Lane's binary mm. book. They went to Dallas in 66. They interviewed Mrs. Clemens, for example, a very candid interview with her. Of, what a brave woman. She was a, a middle-aged black woman working in Dallas and uh, told the truth. And she said on camera that policemen had come by uh, with, a, with a gun and told her to be quiet or something might happen to you, you know, but she spoke out anyway. I, those are the real heroes of the case, these civilian witnesses who told the truth. But she disappeared after that interview was never seen again. Nobody's able to find her. But um, D'Antonio said in an interview in the 60s that when they went to Dallas, Dealey Plaza was fine to shoot and nobody hassled them. But he said all the tension was at the tip of the scene. Everybody was afraid to talk. And mm. said Mrs. Clemens. And uh, uh, they felt great tension there. You know, and, uh, So the tip of the scene is a fraught aspect of the case, but I, I, I advanced the case uh, as far as I could. And I also tried to evaluate various people who, who might have killed Tippett. We can get into that. And I tried to assess the evidence. Of, and I interviewed Tippett's mistress, Johnny Maxie Witherspoon. That's a whole story in itself. And uh, 
There's some people who claim that her estranged husband killed something because he was following them around out of jealousy, but I, I don't think he killed Tippett, but uh, I ran into that story as well. But she gave me a very candid interview. So so it seems like, obviously, the police, the Dallas police know more about what happened with Tippett, and they're covering it up for whatever reason. But based on your decades of research, you kind of think maybe Tippett was his job that day, kind of, you know, off the off the record, you know, on those phones was to take out Oswald, perhaps, or or maybe get him out of town, or you yeah, know, or kill him, or 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 take him in. I mean, and and he 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 failed in that, and then, well, you know, some people think they speculate he was supposed to, as you say, take Oswald out of town uh, to an airport nearby or help him escape. But I think that that aspect of the story doesn't hold water in light of the fact that. The Dallas police ordered Tippett and and Menzel to find Oswald, and that proves, by the way, the Dallas police knew who Oswald was. They had a special uh, unit, like a lot of police departments do, to monitor uh, alleged communists and uh, you know, like they called them red squads, dissidents, etc. And Oswald was on their list. And <clears throat> one way we knew that is when they put out his address, they gave an old address for Oswald, indicating they knew that he had lived in a different place, but they, they knew how to find him very quickly, and uh, so he, you know, it was a myth uh, they put out that they didn't know this guy at all, and uh, everybody was trying to cover their tracks. The FBI knew him well, and, right? Uh, but um, uh, Tippett was, um, you know, it's a question unresolved: Were they supposed to kill him or arrest him? And I leaned toward possibly that they were going to eliminate him because um, at the theater, not long after that, there was some evidence that he might have been set up for being shot in the theater since he got that far. Policemen with guns were there, and one of them said he drew a gun on Oswald, and Oswald uh, uh, pushed him away and uh, stopped him from shooting him. And Oswald had the presence of mind to shout loudly, I'm not resisting arrest, I'm not resisting arrest, and there were some civilian witnesses who, who uh, they took a, a list of the names of the people who were at the movie, 10 or 20 people, and that list has never shown up, too. That's another example really? of important evidence being buried, but a couple of the witnesses were known, and they were reporting odd behavior, Oswald moving from seat to seat, etc., probably looking for a contact. Uh, spies and agents often have rendezvous in dark theaters if they're supposed to meet some contact, you know. Uh, but so I think they were probably trying to kill him and they failed uh, in both places. And then eventually, soon after that, they had to have Jack Ruby go and kill him. They, they really had to silence him because he was starting to talk. And we don't even know what he was saying at the long interrogation sessions because they didn't keep a uh, tape recorded. Uh, record of it or have a stenographer there uh, some notes have come out and some of the people involved in the interrogations have given you know accounts of the you know you, you can't take those at face value that's pretty uh, unbelievable though joe that that they didn't have anybody taking notes it's it's like it's like really hard to believe you know yeah. um, they didn't want a tape recorder and if, if you know if they really needed one they could go out and buy one real quickly and uh, yeah and he and he always maintained his innocence too. That's the thing that even some of the 
police say, right? I mean, they're, they're like, come on, just admit to it. And, you know, if, if he did this thing and he want, wanted infamy and wanted to get caught, like, how come he never confessed to it? You know, I mean, that's that's the other thing. Yeah, that's the big silly part about the whole story that the best people could come up with for a motive was that he wanted infamy as he said that he wanted to be an important guy. And, well, yeah, okay, if that's the truth, why didn't he just proclaim I shot Kennedy and here's why I shot him and he didn't, he was protesting his innocence. And, um, uh, all of them say, yeah, he never admitted killing either and on, on his live press conference, which people can watch on YouTube, it's uh, he, he was, Wade said the purpose of that was just to show him to the press that he wasn't being seriously beaten up by the cops. He had a couple of bruises from this couple of theater. But yeah. He started talking, and uh, you could tell that they were unhappy that he was talking to the press because he said, I don't know anything about this. I'm accused of murdering a policeman. And then some reporter says, uh, uh, you know, you've been charged with murdering the president. He looks genuinely shocked. I mean, uh, Detective LaBelle told me he was shocked because we hadn't told him that. Mm -hmm. uh, he heard it as he was being dragged through the halls. But he wasn't officially told that he was going to be charged with murdering the president. And he said, I, I, I request somebody to come forward to give me legal assistance. And I, I remember being, you know, appalled and moved by that, as were many people around the country that this guy didn't have the wire. And, um, and there's a story there. But um, so the question is, what happened? Why was Tippett? killed um there are various theories that you know you, you can't totally prove any of them but there was a woman living nearby who looked out her window and she said she saw a uh, dallas police car in the alley Tippett pulled up right at an alley block he blocked the alley between two uh homes and there was an alley there and a police car allegedly was in the alley. And it is known that there were two women living at the corner house, the Davis sisters, who came out right away when they heard the shots and they said policemen were already there. And the official story is the policemen didn't show up until, um, I think it was 1.20. The ambulance arrived at 1.19 and the ambulance was just a, uh, like a few blocks away. They, a funeral home that had ambulances that service the police and Bowley uh told me he saw the policeman obviously dead on the street and Benavides was trying to use the police radio and he didn't know how to do it but Bowley worked for uh, the telephone company and he knew how to operate radios so he picked up the radio and called in the report and uh you know then they they uh, told him to get off the radio and they they uh, said an ambulance would be coming uh, and then policemen started showing up. But according to the Davis sisters, policemen were already there. This would have been around 110 or thereabouts. Uh, what's that about? So uh, there there was another witness who said that uh, he saw somebody walking from the alley who had sh first shot Tippett from the grass, you know, uh, next to the police car, shot Tippett, who was on the other side of the car. Tippett fell, and this guy came back and gave him a coup de gras shot into the head and if you look at the autopsy photos there is a very good autopsy on Tippett. he has a bullet wound in the head and he has bullet wounds in the chest and um, that was to, to finish him off it's also kind of a gangland signature to shoot somebody in the head even if they're already dead and then uh, this guy went back and, and and left in the police car and there was an officer westbrook who was the head of personnel 
who is a suspicious figure in this case. And one reason I, I do books, uh, you know, is not only to fill gaps and correct errors and myths, but you hope that you will uh, inspire other people to dig into the case because the tip of murder was still neglected when I started my research. But since then, I'm, I'm really glad other people are pursuing it and it's become a, a big topic again. And um, some people uh, have speculated on people I didn't focus on, like Captain Westbrook. He's the head of personnel. He was wearing a suit. He, he wasn't, uh, you know, a, a beat officer. And he was downtown, and he get, he makes his way to Oakland. Why is he out there? And he's kind of taking charge of the scene. And uh, he may have been the guy in that car, and there may have been, uh, you know, the, the killer went away with him. And uh, so that would make two people involved. And um, another person uh, nearby saw this car in the alley, and uh, some people dispute this, but. Um, Tippett, uh, in my opinion, the best evidence so far indicates Tippett drove into a police ambush. He was shot for some reason by his own people. Mm. And one reason it is scandalous that they didn't investigate the murder of the One thing I noticed on the police radio, I had the, the tape. Um, when Kennedy is killed, the police seem very blasé about it. You know, they don't seem excited. But when when there's a report saying an officer was shot. Suddenly, they, you know, we get excited. Everybody's voices rise, and <clears throat> there's a lot of fast traffic. A lot of people checking in. And I, I said to Jim Lavelle, um, you know, I noticed that the police got a lot more excited about the killing of the policeman than they did of the president. And said, "That's right." He indicated, as is well known, when a policeman is shot, that's the number one thing that gets the police department upset, naturally. But in this case, it overrode the killing of the president, which is you know, a bigger deal. But um, uh, I said, how did the police regard the shooting of the president? And he said, well, he broke into this sort of sly little smile. And he said, well, it's like an old saying, uh, uh, it weren't no different from a Texas, from, from a South Dallas N-word shooting, that's what he said. And he, he used the actual N-word. Wasn't that when you Yeah, when you interviewed him, right, yeah. he, he used that language and was pretty much unabashedly openly racist, um, yeah. according to your book. And, um, yeah, another thing I think you touch on in your book, too, was, uh, you know, some of the Dallas police were, were members of the Klan or, or peripherally related to the Klan and uh, may, may have also moonlighted as uh, security connected to other places, including Tippett, right? I mean, isn't it possible that he... He was a, a bouncer or he worked security at like a, a restaurant or something like that or a club? Yeah, I could fill you in there. I mean, one, one of the most amazing, and, and Lavelle was a great interview. I mean, he, uh, he, 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 he seems to kind of, you know, tell me a lot of truth. I mean, you have to ask the right questions to get people to open up. And Right. He, he obviously covered up some things, but, you know, he and Wade uh, were more forthcoming than I expected, and I got good interviews out of them. I, I, you know, I've, I've been interviewing people my whole life, I've interviewed estimated 15,000 people. I think I'm a good interviewer. I get people to open up and tell me things that they wouldn't tell otherwise. But um, uh, what was the thing you were asking about? I, I know this. Oh, the Klan. Yeah, I was interviewing Morris Brumley, who was a retired detective. He was the oldest friend of Tippett that I could find. He went to school with Tippett in East Texas. They grew up together. 
I actually interviewed another man who was in that period, but Brumley had continued to be his friend all through the police period. And uh, Brumley, as we were talking, we, we had lunch at a diner in Dallas, <clears throat> and I had my tape recorder on the table right in front of me, and Brumley started telling me how he had been a Klan member, and he pulled out his wallet and proudly showed me his Ku Klux Klan membership card signed by the Grand Dragon and all this, and <laughs> writing down the information. So I said, well, what, what is that all about? And he said, well, I inf infiltrated the Klan for Dallas police. But then he started boasting with this really evil smile about how they had castrated black men and ripped them and horrible stuff. And when you interview somebody, you try to keep a straight face because if you express shock or surprise even, sometimes people clam up. And unfortunately, as the story went on, you know, I couldn't restrain myself from saying something. I, I said, well, you were infiltrating them from Dallas police. Did you report any of these crimes that took place in ripping and castrating? And he immediately clam, clammed up. I wish, <laughs> I wish I'd done it a little differently, but, you know, I have this on tape. And I, I, I asked a Dallas area researcher about this, and he laughed and said, infiltrating the Klan, he said about three-fourths of the Dallas Klan were Dallas police, but it was a deeply racist place, you know, and uh, um, uh, so you got clans members uh, all over the place. Right? Tippett uh, worked for a um, uh, barbecue stand called Austin's Barbecue, which was um, in Oak Cliff, and it was a hangout for local uh, teenagers. And it was near the uh, police uh, station in, in that area where Tippett worked out of. But Tippett had been a security guard there from 61 to 63. And I interviewed Austin Cook, who ran the barbecue place, very affable fellow. He was a John Birch Society member, very, you know, right-wing guy. And I, I found out through him and other people, a lot of the prominent right-wingers in Dallas hung out at Austin's barbecue. I mean, I found stories about it saying, everybody went to Austin's barbecue. Well, they certainly did. It was like a hub of right-wing activity. It was the scene, huh? You get good, good barbecue there and talk John Birch. <laughs> Great barbecue, but also the talk about your right-wing views. One of the most right-wing people there was uh, Deputy DA Bill Alexander, who I interviewed briefly. He was the real vulnerable guy. He got angry and asked him questions. He was fired by Henry Wade for being too right-wing because he publicly said that Earl Warren should be hanged. Alexander was quick to get to the Tippett murder scene and he was he carried a gun and he was bragged uh, about how he'd love to suspects and he was a real flaming right wing nut. Now, was it Wade was it Wade who um is profiled in Thin Blue Line that that documentary that came out later on um and they showed most of his cases if not all were fraudulent or corrupt that he that arrests that he made and in prosecutions? Yeah he was notorious for uh, running a very corrupt uh, legal system there. He's the Wade and Roe versus Wade by the way he's the opposing Oh, party. really? Same guy? Jeez. <laughs> Boy, he's quite a historical figure, huh? Yeah, and he went to University of Texas with uh, John Connolly and Pam Jones and other people. And they no all kidding. Each other. But uh, Wade, uh, was a very affable fellow, but um, he did a terrible job on, on the Oswald case. And uh, he, But he prosecuted Jack Ruby, too. And he would have prosecuted Oswald if he had lived. But... Um, uh, Alexander worked for him, and, and but other right-wing figures hung out there. And Austin Cook knew General Edwin Walker, who was a very famous uh, right-winger living in Dallas. 
been fired by President Kennedy from the high position of the army because he was trying to indoctrinate the troops in Europe with John Burr Society literature and things like that. And he was uh, <clears throat> one of the main ringleaders at the University of Mississippi uh, riots when they integrated the university into two people were killed. And Walker was a real uh, uh, trouble rouser. And uh, Austin Cook knew him. And he said their little bird society group had Walker talk to them and suggest, and you know, and so it, it is clear that Tippett was operating wow. in a milieu in which he would be known to various prominent right wingers of the police uh, and the district attorneys people because he's he's working his barbecue two nights a week and he was in uniform too, and so. They could have recruited him into a plot, and I think Tippett was somehow involved in, in the plot. I mean, obviously, he's, he and Mensel were involved in the plot if they were told to find Oswald long before Oswald was officially known. Oswald was obviously the designated patsy, even you know, right, right at that time. They said, "Okay, go get him." And um, Tippett also worked as a security guard at a theater, Spanish language theater, which was known for. Uh, the owner was involved in drug trafficking, among other things. And during the Warren Commission hearings, there was an odd comment. Alan Dulles, the former head of the CIA, who was fired by Kennedy after the Bay of Pigs, asked Chief Curry, uh, there's a rumor that Officer Tippett was involved in drug trafficking. And Curry said, I know nothing about that. That's just kind of a hanging thing that is, we don't know much about that. But one thing, uh, you know, I studied there's that old saying, follow the money, which actually the screenwriter William Goldman invented for all the presidents. It wasn't actually said during Watergate, but he wrote that. It's a very good line, you know, follow the money. So I was trying to follow Tippett's finances, and uh, he was like $463 a month, which wasn't much. And, but he and his wife owned two homes. They had mortgages heavily on two homes, but they had moved from a home and then they rented it out and then they were living in a different home. And, uh, you know, how does a guy have two homes and a meager salary? And he obviously supplemented it with his security guard gigs. But also, uh, the summer of 63, he apparently came into some money because he and his family, including some siblings, went to on a trip uh, to Grand Canyon and other places. And, his father told me uh, J.D. bought him a pickup truck around that time, and Mrs. Tippett said uh, uh, they bought a new station wagon around that time. They had two cars. So they were kind of living beyond their means, which could suggest that he was getting money from some illicit source. Uh, so, and then they had a mistress, and they tried to paint him as, as a good family man. You know, one of the things you mentioned that it was odd that they didn't want to report facts about the case. It is very strange. Your brother officer is killed. You want to put yourself the crime. But they basically dropped the case after Oswald was shot because they pinned it on him. And um, they should have, you know, looked into it. And Lavelle claimed, well, we kept the case open and occasionally I'd, I'd get a tip and I'd investigate it. But they clearly didn't care. And mm -hmm. one theory is that, I mean, if, if J.D. was involved in the plot, they certainly didn't want to probe into that. But <clears throat> he was not a good family man, as they claimed. He, he had a mistress, uh, and he had other women, and uh, he was involved with various things. But Johnny Lee, uh, Johnny Max Witherspoon, really opened up to me. Um, they've been 
she was a waitress at Austin's barbecue and they'd had a sexual relationship for uh, months and um, if not longer and uh, it, uh, she got pregnant around that time she she found out she was pregnant in uh, the fall of 63 and she had a daughter in April 64 and uh, uh, some people think that daughter is a Tippett's child but Tippett had uh, two sons and, and a uh, daughter with Marie Tippett, but this, this other woman could have been his, his child, but Mrs. Witherspoon uh, told me that she claimed uh, J.D. had a vasectomy, and that, that had never come out. Vasectomies were uncommon back then, but you, they were given. Uh, she said uh, her husband, uh, Steve uh, Thompson, was the father of the child. But there is a theory that what Tippett was doing when he was shot was having a rendezvous with Johnny Max Witherspoon, who was telling him she was pregnant, what are we going to do about it? Panicking or whatever. And it is known that the husband, Steve Thompson, was following them around. He was jealous. And, uh, but she said that she and Steve got back together again after the uh, Tippett was killed. And she said, I really love Tippett and good guy, et cetera. And uh, Marie Tippett came into Austin's barbecue not long after the killing and was trying to find out from people. Uh, she was making out the scene about who's this waitress, JD. Problem because, for one thing, uh, she found flowers on the grave, and there there was a note there, and Mrs. Thompson, and Mrs. Witherspoon said, "Yeah, I left the flowers on the grave for the note." And I said, "What was the note?" And she said, "I'm not going to tell you," but Austin said the note was something like, "To the best man I ever knew." Something very naturally just concerned, and she even went to Helen Markham's house because Markham was the waitress. But she was a, a middle-aged woman, and uh, uh, you know, not, not terribly convicting uh, or anything. But she, Mrs. Tippett was accusing Helen uh, Martin, maybe being JD's mistress. So Mrs. Tippett was aware of her husband's philandering, which contradicts the whole story about him being a great family. But there's even a rumor that I could never track down that the day of the killing, Marie had asked her husband for a divorce that day. And, uh, but I mentioned that to Mrs. Witherspoon. She said, uh, 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 Tippett wanted to divorce his wife. And, uh, so it's a different kind of story. And Marie Tippett would not talk to me. I, I tried to reach her and she just stonewalled me. She was surrounded by Dallas police for the rest of her life. And yeah, didn't she just die a couple years ago? Yeah, she just died. And, and after the book came out, I went to Dallas again in 2014. At the Sixth Floor Museum, which is this sort of, you know, Oswald did it museum. Yeah, I was they, actually there three years ago today at the the museum. Yeah, it's it's interesting, but it's so slanted. But they do have public um, discussions with witnesses that are useful, and you can see some online. But they scheduled one on Tippett's 90th birthday with Mrs. Tippett and her two surviving children. So I flew to Dallas. I thought, here's a chance to maybe uh, talk to Mrs. Tippett. And um, at the end of the speech, I went over to Marie Tippett and introduced myself and, and said I would put the book on the case. And she was very, very nice. She seems like a, in some ways a very nice lady. And 
she was very cordial. And I said, uh, you know, I'll be here for a day or two. Could I come tomorrow and interview you? And she, she seemed willing to do it. And Gary Mack, who was this guy who used to be a conspiracy theorist who had gotten a $200,000 a year job at the Sixth Form Museum as a curator, sold out to the other side and started saying Oswald did it. He was standing there frantically signaling this policeman who was Mrs. Tippett's minder. And this guy came over and uh, I had photographs of this. A friend of mine was photographing this. The guy intervened and he said, uh, hi, uh, I'll, I'll take care of the, uh, I handled her interview request. So he gave me his card and I gave him my card. And he said, we'll get back to you. Of course, they never got back to me. And Mrs. Tippett didn't do the interview. Um, but Gary Mack was, you know, stifling this interview. And then as the little gathering continued, I went over to Curtis Tippett, who's the officer's youngest son. And he was there that day uh, for lunch. Allegedly, his father had lunch at home and went off and got killed. But I can talk about that because it's reflecting stories on that. But Curtis seemed like a really nice guy, a very affable fellow. I was talking to him and I was just getting to know him and uh, the same officer saw us he came charging over he grabbed Curtis by the arm without saying a word and pulled him away from me. I don't know what Curtis thought was going on wow. I mean they really kept a, a clamp on it and I was told by Dallas researchers that police cars were always outside Marie's home for 40 odd years that would have been 50 years I mean they really that's strange they yeah that's really strange yeah she gave interviews over the years, and I, I dug up everyone I could find. And she gave conflicting stories about the lunch that supposedly happened. The JD, you know, uh, she claimed came home for lunch. Uh, she gave various times, which is somewhat suspicious, although, you know, she could be confused, from 11.30 onward. And then when they heard that Kennedy was shot, he left, and then soon after that, he gets killed. Uh, so they had a quick lunch, but her son, Alan, was in school that morning and was got really ill and had to come home, which is kind of interesting. Uh, Alan uh, supposedly told a researcher late in his life that that morning his father said, no matter what happens today, I want you to know that I love you. He said his father had never been that openly affectionate before, but that story is disputed, but we don't know what Alan knew. Alan wound up having a lot of trouble with the law himself. Uh, it's a sad story because, you know, without a father, uh, this is typically married a couple of times, but um, they, they still have a son. Alan died uh, of cancer. I never got to talk to him. But uh, anyway, Marie Tippett gave a lot of conflicting stories about the lunch and how long JD was there and, and uh, all kinds of anomalies, which I, I always find interesting because I wonder if the lunch didn't happen, if it was uh, an alibi, because he was seven miles from where he was shot. I mean, and the presidents in town, uh, a lot of these officers claim they're having lunch in a very nonchalant way when the president was in town, and you'd think everybody would be on the alert. And there was a, a neighbor across the street who, uh, there's another guy, Dale Myers, wrote what I call the Warren Report of the Tippett case. He had published this book before mine. It's called uh, With Malice. The, the title alone showed that, shows that this case was loaded against Oswald. And he slants all the evidence in the Oswald direction. And then 
the stories that contradict that, he puts in the book in footnotes, you know, so you could say they're in the book, but he, he um, disputes them all and, you know, everything, well, that didn't happen, that didn't happen. But um, there was a woman he found, um, Mrs. Grumbly, who lived across the street, who allegedly saw Tippett leaving in his squad car. So I found Mrs. Grumbly and I interviewed her uh, three times. And a nice lady, and she, she wrote a book about Oak Cliff and all this, but her story didn't match the, the known facts in many ways. I really broke down her story after a while. It just, it, it, it seemed to me that what she, what she saw was, you know, a couple of days before, maybe Tippett was home with police car and then left, and she somehow conflated that with the day of the assassination. So her story doesn't hold uh, water. But uh, the jury is still out on this lunch, you know, and uh, I mean, another theory that other people put out and I, I investigated this was that Tippett had been one of the shooters in Dealey Plaza. There was a character called Badge Man and actually Gary Mack, who I just mentioned, who went over yeah. the dark side, helped discover this. So there was a great photo researcher in Fort Worth named uh, Jack White, who I interviewed, very nice, serious guy. And he was an expert on photography. And he, uh, there's like a great Polaroid picture taken by Marianne Norman. She was about 15 feet from Kennedy when he was shot. And she took a picture right around the time of the uh, headshot. And unfortunately, since it's a Polaroid, it's a bit murky. But in the background, you can see the concrete retaining wall on the grassy knoll. And then there's the wooden fence. And a number of credible witnesses said, they saw and heard a shot from the fence, the wooden fence. There was even smoke there. But other people, there, there are seven photos or frame enlargements from films of a human shape, uh, in black, dressed in black, leaning on the retaining wall at the time of the shooting. And then that figure vanishes soon after that. And uh, uh, Jack White was able to. Uh, do uh, a photo enhancement, not, not changing it, but bringing out different levels of light. It, it revealed what looks like a policeman uh, right behind the, the uh, retaining wall. <clears throat> and the policeman, you can see the badge, you can see the shoulder patch, and uh, there's a kind of muzzle flash right in front of it to, to be firing a weapon. And that would be a perfect angle for the fatal uh, headshot, which hit Kennedy in the right temple, contrary to what the official version was, and blew out the back of its head. Um, and uh, anyway, th this policeman is dubbed Badge Man. And some people said, well, he's somebody dressed as a policeman. Well, maybe he was an actual policeman. But the interesting thing was, when I started my research on Tippett, I was struck by the fact that there were very few pictures of in the Warren volumes, there are two pictures of him, one from 1952 and one from 57. And he looked a lot different over the years, as most of us do. In 57, the picture was, uh, you couldn't see his eyes very well. It's kind of shadowy, he's wearing a cap. And there were no pictures of him close to the shooting. And I thought, that's a hot, you know, they're trying to hide what he looked like so people wouldn't say, I saw that guy in this place. Yeah. But when I went to the Sixth Floor Museum on one of my visits, um, they had a display of photos of Tippett. And somebody had come up with a photo from 62, 
this around Thanksgiving. And he looked a lot older and more weathered. And he had a very distinctive hairline that had kind of a funny notch. If you look at it, it's very distinctive. And the, the Batchman figure has exactly that hairline. And when I saw that, I thought, typically Batchman. Um, and, you know, he, he could have theoretically fired the shot and gotten to Oakland by 1245 because five minutes from downtown. And if you have a police car, you could get through the traffic. So, but um, the, the lunch story would tend to contradict him being at the Dealey Plaza in time to shoot Kennedy because it's a long way from his home to Dealey Plaza. Uh, so that's why the lunch story is so important. Um, but there were people who saw the police when there was a black couple, young uh, man and woman, who were uh, seated on a bench. Uh, behind the retaining wall, and they said a policeman uh, was there and fired a shot and then left and brushed past them. And they were terrified. And, you know, being black in Dallas in 1963 was a dangerous position to be in. And they weren't about to come forward and say, I saw a policeman shooting Kennedy. But they came out later in an interview. And, uh, uh, so, in other words, there is some interesting evidence there and that would account for if that were true uh why took that would be a reason why took was killed because if you think about it kennedy's killed at 12 30. the policeman is killed about 108 and then oswald is arrested at 152. it makes the dallas police look like geniuses in a certain sense they wrapped it all up within um, an hour and a half yeah, they'd be able to button it up that quickly and, and have their guy. <laughs> yeah, some people even claim that without speculating about it, but they, they say, well, you know, they caught the killer within uh, less than an hour and a half. They did a pretty damn good job. You know? I mean, they did, they did a terrible job. They, they, there are all kinds of things that they did wrong, especially letting the prisoner be shot. There were 60 policemen and a lot of uh, reporters and journalists at the police station suspect was shot and it's clearly facilitated by the Dallas police and people have studied that they have names oh Ruby being able to get into the garage there and yeah and, yeah. and shoot Oswald yeah yeah they should have transferred him in the middle of the night and there was even a warning called into the station somebody said you know Oswald's gonna get killed and uh, but they they they, they uh, transferred him in, in view of everybody and uh, uh, let this guy in and uh, he had he knew everybody in the Dallas police department. He was basically the mob's bag man with the Dallas police. He had this strip club downtown and he would let policemen come in and drink uh, for free and uh, he would mm -hmm. give them girls to tally with them. A lot of the people involved in the case had been uh, cronies of Jack Ruby and he was the bag man so he was the guy if they needed to get police from do anything, he'd be in the intermediary. He may have been much more involved in the plot than people think. It wasn't so much that he was just told, to, you know, at the last minute to shoot Oswald. There's, there's some evidence that he he might have planted the so-called magic bullet at Parkland, and he may have been at the Tibet murder scene. And there's an extraordinary um, testimony by him in the Dallas jail. <clears throat> Earl Warren and Gerald Ford, who was one another Warren Commissioner, came down to Dallas to get his testimony. But 
Ruby was in jail and he was afraid for his life being in the Dallas jail and he felt constrained in talking. And Carl Oglesby wrote a great book called The Yankee and Cowboy War, which is about how Watergate and Kennedy assassination, uh, some of the same players were involved, etc. But he has a long deconstruction of Ruby's testimony. And it's, it's rather moving because Ruby was trying to tell the truth, but he felt constrained. And he, he was begging Warren to take him to Washington. He said, if you take me to Washington, I can speak more freely. And Warren said, well, I don't, I don't think there's any reason for that. And Ruby kind of gives up and says, well, you, you've, lost, you've lost me, uh, Mr. Chief Justice. And he also uh, uh, was hinting broadly that he was involved in the plot. And uh, Warren said, well, we've had no testimony uh, to that effect, Mr. Ruby. And so, yeah, yes, but you don't know the evidence here. So saying, yeah. I mean, yeah. willfully ignorant of the, of, uh, the evidence. They didn't want to hear any stories from this guy. And he, they didn't even want to know much about his mob connections. There were many phone calls, for example, on the record, uh, a flurry of phone calls in November between Ruby and various mob figures. And they, they really should have investigated that. They didn't want to know. Oh yeah, or, or his connections to gun running, and and uh, um, what I find fascinating that I that I learned recently from um, Tom O'Neill's book Chaos was that uh, Jack Ruby was visited by the CIA mind control doctor uh, Charlie West, um, and uh, after that was declared not insane, but the West was like, oh, I you know I'm I'm treating him, and it's it's of my opinion that he's got you know mental issues or or, or schizophrenia or something, and uh, of course, it wasn't disclosed at that time who Jolly West was or what he was up to. But here's the guy who was who was in charge of MK Ultra and uh, you know uh, unwittingly drugging people and and uh, mind control experiments. And that's the guy they had in there with Ruby. It's like yeah, yeah. it's just one of those connections that's just wild. Yeah, he survived until '67, and uh, uh, he claimed that the cancer he died from was injected into him, which is possible. Um, but he was a sad case because he, he did mentally deteriorate in custody, uh, you know. But he um, he knew a lot more than he let on. But he wasn't allowed to speak freely, and people people just uh, ignored what he said. They they thought he was schizoid, and he did say some things that were uh, paranoid, like he thought Jews were being murdered in the basement of the police station and things like that. Um, yeah, that, that's what he was saying after he was visited by Jolly West. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they could have given him drugs to reduce madness. Um, but he was a, a, an important figure who was not investigated clearly. Uh, Seth Cantor wrote a good book called Who Was Jack Ruby? And that's one of the better books in the case. <clears throat> but in uh, my, my recent book, Political Truth, the Media and the Assassination of President Kennedy, um, I've, I've been aware for a long time since I was a kid. You know, I told you that when I heard the radio reports, I first smelled the rat when they changed the story 20 minutes into the case without explaining it. That's always been a red flag for me is when the official story changes like that. Um, Barry Levinson, who made Wag the Dog, which is a good film, and it, it shows you how they can manufacture visual evidence today. It's very easy to fake evidence in this, that case, to support a war, a phony war. Levinson said, and I, he said, Find out what's happening within an hour or two after the event because they can change the so-called evidence quickly. Now today it'd be a lot quicker, maybe half an hour. But I always thought that was true that 
if if I would always, that's why I ran to the radio. I wanted to hear the first reports. Now, obviously, some first reports are misleading because people are confused and all that. But often, and you know, it's convenient. The mainstream media often say uh, early reports are almost always wrong. It takes a while for the truth to come out. Well, I think first reports in a shooting or, or things like that are often more true than the cover story, which takes a little while to assemble. Definitely. I, uh, within uh, two or three hours, uh, J. Edgar Hoover already said, we've clinched the case, Oswald did it. Well, there's no possible way you could know that within two or three hours, you know. Uh, and then they declared Oswald was the lone suspect, and, you know. Uh, but um, so so uh, I, I heard the early reports that contradicted the uh, official report. And if you, if you look at many witnesses, uh, researchers have gone to and there's a wealth of contradiction of things you know many people for example saw the limousine stop briefly and then drive off and in the Zahura film you know you see it's slowing down but it doesn't quite stop and that's suspicious but there were like 57 people who saw it stop or come to a near stop and I interviewed Senator Ralph Yarborough who was riding in the car with Linda Johnson and his wife two cars behind, uh, uh, they were the third car behind the presidential limousine. He said the car stopped, the limousine stopped, and he said Secret Service men were jumping out of the follow-up car and swarming the car, and you don't see that in the Zapruder film. And, um, and then they took off. Um, <clears throat> so the Zapruder film has been altered. This is, uh, some of these things I, I found hard to believe for a while that there could be a second Oswald, but that's very common in tradecraft where they have two or more people mm -hmm. uh, with the identity so they can use it for plausible denial. If the guy does something in one city, they could say, no, he was somewhere else. And also, the whole idea of the Zapruder film, we kind of bought that it was uh, a true record of things, but um, the film went to the CIA laboratory in uh, Rochester, a uh, secret laboratory they had uh, that weekend, and it was altered. And Douglas Horn, who is a very good researcher working for the Assassination Records Board, um, did exhaustive studies. He, he did a five-volume set of books on the case, and part of it is, is demonstrating conclusively that this Zapruder film was altered. Two CIA uh, photo experts that weekend were brought copies of the Zapruder film to make frame enlargement blow-ups and put them on briefing boards so they could show president and the head of the CIA and you know very small audience and those two guys who were both uh, reputable um, gave different stories they, they didn't know the other guy was working on the on the briefing boards so it was compartmentalized and um, the fellow who was the number one expert um, described the film he worked on in ways that contradicted the superior film as we have it now like the explosion on its head, which shows debris kind of in a burst of red there. Uh, it's only one frame in the film, which defies credibility. But he said, no, it was a bigger uh, explosion. It went backwards uh, for several frames. And the policeman riding in the motorcycle to the left of the motorcycle was sprayed in the face by debris from Kennedy's head. He, he actually thought he'd been shot in the face. It was so. Uh, sharp you know and it was covering his helmet in his face and, and uh you know there were a lot of 
ways you can corroborate this stuff. And um, the, the worst thing, though, the big hole that you see in the Zapruder film, which goes from the side of Kennedy, said all, all over the top, it's like this one gigantic hole, this flap. Well, um, the doctors and nurses at Parkland Hospital, none of them described a wound like that. All of them described a wound in the back of the head about the size of a grapefruit. And Kennedy's brains were oozing out of the hole. And uh, there was also, I discovered a uh, FBI document that really destroys the Warren Report. It's one of the top officials at the FBI the night of the shooting wrote a memo and he said, uh, uh, a bullet is lodged behind the president's right ear and rear in the process of obtaining it. This was when the official autopsy was being conducted. That, that bullet was never entered into evidence. But there were witnesses, including Secret Service agents and civilians, who said that you saw a bullet hit him in the right temple, and that's probably what blew up the back of his head. But the, the wound changed between um, Dallas and, and Parkland. And one of the things that I found most striking when I was getting into my research in William Manchester's uh, authorized book on the assassination in 67, 1967, he described, and I had never heard this before, of this uh, uh, tug of war over Kennedy's coffin in the <clears throat> in the um, halls of the hospital as they were trying to leave. And the Dallas medical examiner, Earl Rose, who did excellent autopsies, autopsies on Oswald and Tippett, was trying to say, no, wait a minute, Texas law mandates in a homicide, the autopsy has to be conducted here, and I'm the guy who's supposed to do it. And the Secret Service and Kenny O'Donnell, who was one of Kennedy's aides, were uh, trying to force the coffin through the hallway. And Mrs. Kennedy was standing there, and they were using profanity, and they were uh, waving guns around. I mean, this is really kind of shocking. And they were trying to, uh, they pushed Earl Rose up against the wall at one point, and they pushed Coffin through. But they actually called. Uh, there was a um, justice of the peace on the scene, and I talked to Henry Wade about this. And Wade said, "Yeah, it was my my call. Uh, the JP called me, and uh, I said, take, let him take the coffin back to Washington. Um, you know, it's at worst it's a hundred dollar fine. He even kind of laughed about it, like you know, good deal, you know." Uh, but if so, that's they, they stole the body at gunpoint, and I thought, why did this happen? This wasn't reported in '63. Um, I wondered, and, and uh, David Lifton wrote an important book called Best Evidence, which is another paradigm changer for me in 1980 that Kennedy's body was altered. At, um, well, who was not sure if it was Walter Reed Hospital or Bethesda. Before the official autopsy, there was unofficial aut autopsy and work done on the president's head surreptitiously. And uh, Horn found actual witnesses who saw a two doctors, including one of the autopsy doctors, hammering away at the president's head between 6:55 and 7:05. The official autopsy didn't start till 8:15. But they were removing uh, bullet evidence and uh, making that giant hole in Kennedy's head. And he proved that to me. And, uh, um, you know, the bullet behind the ear disappeared. And uh, the, the doctors and uh, nurses are great uh, witnesses of Parkland, honest people. And, and then they made uh, 
well, Kennedy had a shot in, in the uh, windpipe. <coughs> and uh, the doctors who attended uh, him, the number one and two doctors that afternoon gave a press conference, and they said several times it was the entrance room coming out of Yeah. They, they made a tracheotomy in his neck to put a windpipe in, they put a, a tube in there, but the tracheotomy is strange because it's a huge slash. And you, you don't make, a good doctor doesn't make a huge slash like that. But it looks like something where they excavated the wound to remove evidence. But, yeah, it looked, uh, it looked mutilated for sure. To, yeah, to cover it, that it was an entry wound. Yeah, and, and that's what Lifton calls the best evidence is the body. But even in the press, you know, I, I tracked this in my research. Um, I'm so interested in how the media mislead us and, and many stories. And, uh, little stories kept leaking out into the press for a couple of months that contradicted the official story. It, it took until the spring before they came up with the single bullet theory, which tried to justify the number of shots by <clears throat> driving this unlikely tra trajectory between Kennedy's uh, neck, they called it, and Connolly, and it's just as preposterous. But they even moved the location of the back wound from the shoulder up to the neck. Gerald Ford, people have found a document where he, he wrote it handwriting he changed the location of the wound and this came out and uh, that's tampering with evidence but um so the media is that is the official story took a while to coalesce as these things happened there were leaks and there were reports for example in the washington post and new york times that the doctors at the autopsy couldn't find a uh, wound of transit between the back and the front of kennedy the back wound was so shallow, one of, the, one of the doctors put his finger in it, it only went in, you know, uh, about half a finger length, and, and it stopped, there was no bullet there, and they couldn't find a bullet in the body, and that's the, the, the wound that supposedly was, you know, the entrance wound for the magic bullet that allegedly went through Kennedy, but it didn't, and, uh, but the press reported some of these things, but they very quickly fell into line and swallowed the official story. And uh, uh, there was a leak in June of 64 to the New York Times, which is one of the worst uh, culprits in this lying. They li to this date, they lie about the case. Uh, in my book, Political Truth, I, I really go into the Washington Post and the New York Times and CBS most uh, specifically. Uh, Bernstein in his Rolling Stone article said the most heavily CIA infiltrated media are the New York Times, uh, CBS, and Time Life, Time Incorporated, which bought the Zapruder film and kept it under wraps, for example. And Bernstein went light on his old paper in the Washington Post, but they're one of the worst. Even to this day, they keep. Oh, so going. spooky. Huh? They're very spooky. Yeah. I mean, uh, Ben Bradley, wasn't he the um, uh, the owner or the, the CEO at one time? And he was, uh, he was connected to. Um, uh, Cord Meyer, right? Another CIA agents. Well, he was he was the uh, managing editor. Uh, Catherine Graham was the publisher. Her husband Phil Graham, who killed himself in '63, that's uh, right, um, had been involved with the CIA for a long time. With um, uh, Frank Wisner, they created what they called Operation Mockingbird in, in around '51 to recruit members of the media uh, to work for the CIA and. Uh, Graham was heavily involved in that. 
And Bradley uh, was a friend of Kennedy, wrote a book about his friendship with Kennedy, but he, mm -hmm. oddly, if you're a friend, why not investigate his murder? And uh, Mort Saul, a comedian who got blacklisted over being involved in investigating the case, said Kennedy had a strange set of friends, very absent when he died. Uh, after he was shot down like a dog in the street, they abandoned him. And Bradley was one of them. He just, he's, yeah. He lied about the case for a long time and let his paper lie. And now the new owner, Jeff Bezos, is openly involved with the CIA. The, oh, yeah. This has always been kind of a, a CIA front, but now they're not even a front. It's open. Yeah, um, they're, they're open about it. Um, so have you ever talked to any any former or, or uh, intelligence agents, maybe at the time, who, who had questions or, or questioned the official story or, or gave you any kind of hints or agreed with, with your... Well, kind of your train, your train of thinking. One story that I broke, which is very influential in, in 1988, was the George H. W. Bush. Oh yeah, running. I wanted to ask you about that. Thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, in my research, going through 100,000 pages of uh, microfilm <clears throat> that were released under the Freedom of Information Act in 77 and 78, I discovered a number of documents about George H. W. Bush being somehow <clears throat> connected with the case. And uh, one document described him as Mr. George Bush of the CIA. This was November 20, uh, 29th, 63. Jagger Hoover was briefing him and a couple of other people uh, about the actions of the anti-Castro Cubans in Miami who were among the suspects in the case. And, um, so Bush was involved with the CIA long before he became its uh, director in 76. And I, I uh, had a very good source with intelligence connections who confirmed that uh, this fellow was involved in the Bay of Pigs operation. And he said, yeah, Bush was involved in that. And, uh, uh, I, I found more evidence that I couldn't really prove the Bushes are very good at hiding their tracks, that he probably was involved back in the 50s. And it's since come out, Russ Baker did a good book kind of taking off. And the book starts with me discovering this document. And I wrote a piece for The Nation, and then I wrote two follow-up pieces, uh, the third of which they wouldn't run. But it caused quite a stir because Bush was running for president. And my son says that I predicted everything that happened uh, since Bush became president. I didn't quite predict 9-11, but you know, I predicted false wars and all kinds of stuff. Because you know, when you study the Bush family, you, uh, they've done a lot of terrible things for many years. His father was. Uh, they really have. They're a real cadre of ghouls, and it's it's been fascinating to see the rebranding they've done of W, um, you know, since he left office, which is yeah. kind of a kind of appalling to me. You know, it's like, oh, he's good. He he paints now. You know, he's a painter, and uh, we're gonna have him come dance on Ellen, and he's very grandfatherly, and forget about the CIA stuff and the wars and torture and the 9/11 cover up, but pay no attention to that. That's one of the worst things that's happened in recent years. Like, Trump is so bad that he makes uh, George W. Bush look a little better by comparison. But people forget the torture and uh, two two false wars and all kinds of other terrible things and uh, loss of our civil liberties. And so I connect all this with in political truth with the assassination. Most people, I mean, when I was a kid in the early '60s, we really believed the government, and I was, you know, naive kid raised in a Democratic Party family and thought the Democratic Party was really great and the government was honest. And, uh, but that took a nosedive 
starting with the Kennedy assassination, people were very skeptical. From the beginning, there was a Gallup poll about a week later, and the majority of people thought Oswald didn't act alone. They didn't realize he didn't act at all, but um, the Warren report in 64, people started believing the official story again. But then with the Vietnam War, this is the, this is the commonly held view. The Vietnam War is what caused faith in government to fall apart because they were so flagrantly lying to us about the war. Johnson was trying to cover up the extent of the war and the public started being very uh, disenchanted, which is true. But the Vietnam War was an outgrowth of the Kennedy assassination because two days after Kennedy was shot, Johnson secretly reversed uh, Kennedy's decision to start winding down the troops. Kennedy had already uh, issued an order publicly to pull a thousand troops out of Vietnam and they were going to try to uh, wind the war down. And Johnson reversed that secretly with Henry Cabot Lodge, the ambassador to South Vietnam, and uh, Dean Rusk and uh, others at a, at a, a secret meeting. But they put out false stories and I tracked you know, the false stories in the press that, well, there's no real change in policy in Vietnam between Kennedy and Johnson. That's still the official line of historians. Like one, one thing I did for Political Truth was to get a hold of uh, history textbooks that are used in AP courses in the country right now. <laughs> yeah. They lie about the case and they don't say much about it. I mean, it's very short, one paragraph usually. And they say this, you know, loner Oswald shot him and that's about it. And a couple of them say, well, there's some controversy surrounding it, but they don't really dig into it. And this is one of the most important developments in American history. And uh, some well-known, reputable historians, uh, I mean, most establishment historians, Robert Carroll, for example, uh, bought the myth of this fourth volume of his Johnson biography. And, uh, 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 you know, you can't really get published by mainstream publishers if you're questioning that official story. That and 9-11 are kind of the third rails of American politics. You're not supposed to. Oh, uh, definitely. Well, but, I mean, you mentioned Oswald's brother earlier, uh, Robert. He lived a good long life, and he always publicly said that he thought his brother did it. But, you know, maybe he really knew deep down that he didn't do it, but he had a family, he had kids, and he, it was just easier for him and to say that and tell the official line. I don't know. Do, do you have, did you ever talk to Oswald's brother or... No, he didn't really give interviews. He wrote a book on his brother, uh, condemning his brother, you know, he's a traitor to his own brother. But <clears throat> he was a kind of, you know, conventional, upstanding businessman. But um, he he was, yeah, I mean, it, it, a, lot of, a lot of people, I, I've talked to members of the press and book editors, people will say, well, yeah, you know, I think there was a conspiracy, but I can't really say that because, you know, like I pitched political truth in an earlier, uh, I wrote a long proposal. I pitched it to some publishers in the 90s. And one editor said, well, I think there is a conspiracy. We can't publish a book like that because we rely so heavily on the New York Times for reviews of our books. That if, hmm. if we publish a book saying they lied about this big story, uh, it's going to screw that up. So that's kind of the attitude of a lot of people. I suspect a lot of the reporters in Washington and New York uh, know better, but they don't want to stick their neck out because you know access is so important in the media that you look at helen thomas who was a real honest good driving reporter my mother worked with her my mother covered the white house in the 60s and helen thomas and, and 
her mother helped integrate the Washington Press Club, getting women in there as members. And Ellen Thomas told me that her mother was a great reporter, um, which we knew. But it was nice to hear from her. She she started asking tough questions of uh, during the Bush Cheney regime about the wars, and she was basically um, she was always sitting in the front row and always called on earlier and then they stopped calling on her and mm -hmm. she lost her job with the UPI after many years uh, and wound up writing for a throwaway paper in the Washington area I mean that's what happens if you if you question the official story uh, you lose your position you lose your big salaries so one thing has changed my parents were middle class people they they didn't get a lot of money for uh, being re reporters in the 50s the 60s but now the reporters get big bucks you know mm -hmm. tv networks uh get millions and uh so when you do that you start thinking like the establishment more and more back in my parents day they were honest reporters but they were like ordinary people you know um, yeah tell the truth and uh, i respect a lot of reporters there are a few reporters in this case who tried to tell the truth and they get shot down for it and but I, I admire Jefferson Morley, for example, is a guy formerly with Washington Post who left partly because they didn't let him investigate the case. He's the one who's been pursuing this George Duranides matter. And who, who he was was a CIA guy who was very involved with the Miami station, which is where the, the virulent Kennedy hating anti Castro Cubans were. And George H.W. Bush had connections there. Duranides. Um, was probably involved in the framing of Oswald, but when the um, House uh, House Select Committee reinvestigated reinvestigated the case, they were going to probe more deeply into the CIA connections. And Joannides was assigned by the CIA as their liaison, and he didn't tell the HSDA that he had been involved in '63 with uh, events surrounding Oswald in the Miami station somehow concealed that and so he kept misleading them and so morley's been trying to get declassified a lot of documents about joannides and what he actually did he probably helped frame oswald and then misdirect the story and the cia is very vehement covering that up and so uh, you know why are they withholding documents well their culpability and their credibility they're taking another hit of these documents that have come out and i suspect next month uh, Biden will probably release some documents, but some will be still in the way. That's unfortunately the pattern. Uh, but the media just slavishly buy the uh, government stories, and uh, they have a lot to lose. Uh, uh, Norman Mailer observed uh, that they have a lot to lose if they ever go to conspiracy. It's, you know, they've been they blew the case from day one, and, and they've been uh, lying about it ever since. A, a classic example: Tom Wicker in the New York Times was. He wrote the banner story the next day uh, about the assassination. He was in Dallas. He was in the motorcade. And he quoted accurately the doctors saying the entrance of the shot in the throat uh, was the entrance wound. But then the headline says Kennedy killed by sniper singular. And then the story also says, you know, a sniper shot him from the warehouse. But the story contradicts itself because of the shot of the throat. And Wicker <clears throat> became one of the most vehement anti-conspiracy people attacking Oliver Stone's day of 
very angry about it. But I even found in the, in the 66 or 67, even he was starting to wonder about it. He wrote a column saying, well, there are some unanswered questions in Baltimore. But he quickly uh, reversed field as most of the did. Uh, you know, they, they just don't want to know the official story because, for one thing, it would make them look like fools, and, of course. And they, they don't like to admit error. I mean, the Washington, New York Times has inadvertently honest slogan, all the news is fit to print. <laughs> they determine what's fit to print. Oh, yeah. Well, they're just stenographers, man. They're just they're just government official story corporate stenographers. And, uh, you know, I, I live in New Hampshire and I, I've been involved in the New Hampshire primary here since the year 2000 um, in one, you know, shape or other in different campaigns. And I've met a lot of people from the press and I got to tell you, a lot of them are not that intelligent nowadays. They, they really don't know much of anything and they get, like you said, they get so much wrong and there's this huge hubris and arrogance and, um, you know, just condescending nature from a lot of them especially from the New York times. And now it's like daily beast and Politico. And um, yeah, it's just, it's just a gross, just a gross business. And, and there's a, there's a few journalists I, I do respect and um, who have done great work on the Kennedy case and their own independent research, like uh, Daniel Hopsicker and Whitney Webb, um, obviously your work. And, uh, but yeah, for the most part, they're, they're just, they're kind of vapid stenographers, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's their role. Uh, they think of themselves as a branch of the government, which they kind of are, you know, and they should be. I mean, Finley, Peter Dunn, Mr. Dooley, the Irish Canadian uh, comedy writer, wrote um, that the job of the media is to uh, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And I really believe that. And my job, since I, I was lied to systematically as a kid, I, I took this. I take this very personally that yeah. I was lied to by the Catholic Church, which I was very involved in. And I was lied to by the media and I was lied to by the Democratic Party and government, et cetera, et cetera. And so my mission in life has become to expose hidden stories, which I think is part of what journalists should do. And uh, that's one reason why my two Kennedy books I published, uh, Instant Nightmare and Political Truth, uh, independently, uh, one of the liberating things in recent years is self-publication that used to be frowned on as uh, vanity press, et cetera, but many, many books are published uh, by self-publishing authors. What you do is you contract uh, with a uh, fulfillment house, which puts the book on demand and, and uh, mails it out to people. And Amazon lists those books. That was, that was an important step. When people attack Amazon and the internet, I, I point out some good things about them. The discourse is more free on the internet than it is in the mainstream media. There yeah. are a lot of bad sites on the internet, but there are also a lot of honest blogs and, and uh, publications that kind of escape the official uh, uh, warping of the news. Uh, and then mainstream media like to attack them because they, they're not mediated or not uh, edited. You know, but the problem is a lot of Stories like I tried to give some Bush documents to the New York Times once. I, I wanted to get to them to print, and they said, "Are you saying that he might have been involved in the Kennedy assassination?" And I said, "There is some uh, evidence that he could have been." And they said, "We'll get back to you." And, and then they called me two days later, and they said, "We don't want to look at the documents. I just wanted to send them the documents." <laughs> I was trying to get the story out because the Nation wouldn't run my third story on the case. Uh, 
Bush, on the day of the assassination, he was in Tyler, Texas, which is about 75 miles east of, east of Dallas. He was giving a speech at a, at a uh, club, and um, he called the FBI in Houston, which is where he lived, and he reported that a, uh, a worker who was the head of the Houston uh, Harris County Republican Party at the time he was running for, uh, for, for uh, the Senate. And he had a worker named James Parrott, who was a right-wing nut, who was a young guy. And Bush told the FBI, Parrott had been threatening to kill the president when it comes to Texas. And first question is, well, if, if somebody you knew was threatening to kill the president, wouldn't you call the Secret Service before the candidate comes to Texas? Not wait till it happens. And so the FBI sent a guy out to find Parrott, and they, they said he was with his mother at the time, and they kind of dropped the case. And I thought, this is all very strange. So I did a lot of research on Parrott. He wouldn't talk to me. I went to Dallas, I mean, to Houston, and uh, talked to his wife, finally. And she said that uh, a couple days ago, the FBI came around and told us not to talk to you. They said, the FBI? She said, well, or some people like the FBI. They told us not to talk to you. And I thought, wow. I mean, because I kept it a deep secret. I always do this, you know, investigating things. I didn't tell hardly anybody. Uh, but I, uh, and I got a strange phone call when I arrived at Houston, like, uh, uh, you know, very shortly after I arrived, a woman who used to work for the Washington Post who lived in Houston wanted to have me come over to her house. She knew that I was in Houston somehow. I pretended that I was home in Los Angeles and she got really angry with me. Um, but she, she claimed she didn't like Bob Woodward, etc. But uh, one one place that knew I was going to, Dallas and Houston, this is right before the election in the age of additional research. I got a grant from the uh, organization gives grants to journalists to study stories because the nation pays almost nothing. And I needed some expense money. And Woodward was on the board of this uh, organization. And I found out the nation, although it purports to be a liberal publication, had some intelligence connections on their staff as well. So I think somebody there leaked to uh, the FBI or the Republican Party that what I was doing. They were, I, I was aware, I was getting a lot of weird calls from people who were trying to give me disinformation and get me off the track with Bush. Uh, but uh, I, I did a story all based on government documents and other things I found about the Bush parrot connection. I turned it into the nation <clears throat> in uh, late October. I think it was the 24th of October. And they turned it down. They wouldn't run it. And Victor Navasky, the head of the uh, nation, <clears throat> said, stay away from the Kennedy assassination. It's a quagmire. And the nation, since the early days, has supported the Warren report. They, they did run a couple stories early on questioning the official story, but Eventually, it's a Warren report is terrific. So here you have the liberal media. Uh, oh yeah, I have Stone was another one. He was this uh, legend, radical journalist. He he you get angry and scream at people. I'm not going to study that horseshit case. So, um, so they covered up this. Oh, what I found out was Parrot, even though they claimed he had nothing to do with the assassination. Kennedy was in Houston the day before Dallas, and the, I, I went into the Houston papers and I found interesting stories. The police chief said 
he was terrified all the time Kennedy was in Houston that somebody might shoot him. And uh, so they had some tips. But I, I also found out the FBI did a six-month investigation of Parrott and his right-wing friends in Houston and Dallas. He had some crazy friends in Dallas. And I found some of the documents. Uh, they did a serious investigation. There was a lot of smoke there. And not what, you know, what the fire was. Um, but a lot of these documents have been removed from the National Archives after Bush became vice president, which I found out was a pattern. I went to the Securities and Exchange Commission because corporations like Bush's Zapata Corporation, oil company, have to file annual reports about what they're doing with the SEC. And I asked for those reports and they said, oh, they were uh, removed. And I said, when was that? And it was like a month after Bush became vice president, they removed these documents. So they covered their trail. Uh, but this whole Parrot story is kind of a uh, loose end. Parrot also went to work for uh, Bush later when he was running for president, which is peculiar. If you think one of your aides might have been involved in threatening or shooting the president, why would you yeah. as a campaign worker? John Hinckley, for example, uh, was a volunteer in George W. Bush's losing campaign for the House in the 70s. And um, the Bush family were close to the Hinkley's too. I mean, you know, the Bush family has all these connections and the nation didn't want to hear about it. And that's an example of, uh, this is not exactly mainstream press, this is slightly, you know, off, uh, more, more liberal press, but they cover up the story too. And it's really the uh, Maverick people and people like you, you know, doing podcasts, a lot of good podcasts and uh, assassination forums on the internet, which I think are valuable, and uh, mm. blogs and people on the internet exchanging information and writing articles that are good. And uh, we do have freedom of the press in, in um, book publishing to some extent. It's hard to get a book published by a mainstream big publisher on the assassination unless you support the official theory. Yeah, uh, you can still get a book published by some of the smaller publishers or self-published, you know, I think with political truth, you know, recently, and it looks very good, and I'm sure it's yeah, that's uh, nice. So that's that's available on Amazon, and you can order. And yeah. into the nightmare is still available, correct? Yeah, that's selling. It keeps selling steadily, and people around the world are buying it, and, and, it's, and the other book is selling well, and. You know, you can you can do that and get around the system is, is the way to do it. And um, so what happened there was the, the technology, it became easier to put together your own book and make it look professional. You hire a designer and make it um, look good. And I hired a copy editor to help me you know, go through it and then uh, uh, make a deal with the fulfillment house. In my case, a company called Bravante in Utah does a very good job. And they take a cut of sales and Amazon takes a cut but it's all it's all good because Amazon gets it around the world you know and so we do have some freedom in the press even if you don't own a press I mean that's almost like owning a press if you make a deal with independent company like that <clears throat> but yeah. uh, there are many good books on the assassination that keep coming out that's what I would refer people to <clears throat> somebody on Facebook uh, just said, I want to learn more about the case. What do I read? And I, I told them Accessories After the Fact by Sylvia Marr, Best Evidence by David Clifton, uh, Vincent Salandria's False Mystery, Dr. E. Martin Schatz wrote a book called History Will Not Absolve Us, 
Peter Dale Scott did a book, Deep Politics and the Death of JFK. <clears throat> you know, so there are good books on the case. Uh, and John some, Newman's John Newman has some great books and um, on the case, and of course JFK and the Unspeakable is one of my favorites by uh, Douglas James Douglas. Yeah, those are, those are good. And uh, Douglas Warren's five volume set Newman's uh, books on Oswald and the CIA and Kennedy of Vietnam. Uh, um, Jim Diogenio. Oh, he's the gold standard, man. Yeah, to Eugenio's, his book reviews are awesome. And that guy just demolishes the official story. And I, I loved his work with Oliver Stone on those two, uh, you know, Destiny Betrayed and the recent documentaries that came out. I thought those were lights out. So I would recommend anybody interested to um, check all those books out that uh, Joe mentioned. And, and please check out Joe's work. Uh, it's... Uh, into the nightmare. It is a nightmare, guys. It is a real nightmare, and it's ongoing. And I, I agree with your thesis that the distrust and, and everything wrong in our country can be traced back, you know, obviously earlier, but really to November 22nd, 1963, and a, um, a blatant daytime coup d'etat and, and a show of force from um, the military-industrial complex, which, you know, I know it sounds kind of vague, but that's, that's kind of what I've surmised it to be. And... Uh, that's why I think it's still important to look into this case and, and read about it and research it. And, um, you know, I really appreciate your years of work and research and, and uh, you know, for paving the way for, um, you know, other folks like me to come along and look at it. And, um, you know, a lot of younger people are don't really know much about it or don't really think about it. Um, but I, I, I still think it's important and it still matters, you know, to this day. And that's why this month I wanted to do a couple shows about the case. So. Um, we are over two hours now. I know you mentioned, uh, you know, two hour mark. So I want to be respectful of your time. Um, where, where can people uh, support your work? And do, do you have a website or, or, or where can people get in touch with you or see all your stuff? I, I had several websites. I had a personal one. I had an interesting nightmare website, but they, they disappeared. I was so busy. I had four books come out between October and March and I, Kind of lost track of my website renewals and those disappeared there's still one on my memoir the broken places and there's another one on a book i did called two chairs for hollywood which is a collection of my short works but i'm, I'm gonna have to get websites going again but you can go on amazon and find all my books um i've done 24 most are in print i'm bringing some back into print that went out of print but um the uh Political Truth and Into the Nightmare are both uh, on Amazon. That's the place to find it, find them. And uh, I, you know, it really, I wrote Into the Nightmare for kind of two audiences, specialists who really want to dig more deeply into it, and also for casual readers who were interested in the assassination. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of follows my odyssey as, as a young man, learning more and more. You know, it's kind of a first-person search account. And, People like that approach, and then uh, political truth is—it's uh, it, a philosophical book uh, analyzing and critiquing the media. And it really did lead to January 6 because um, we live in a country in which there are two diametrically opposed views of reality. There's uh, the truth, and then there's this uh, false truth that half the country believes in. It's, it shows it's a dangerous situation. I mean, it's good to be skeptical of the government, but that. If it goes too far, it becomes it can become very uh, disruptive, and we saw another coup attempt in, in Washington. Uh, but when you shoot the president in broad daylight and don't bother solving the crime, 
uh, the public gets very disoriented, disenchanted, and, and uh, so many lives have been put forward. You know, actually, one one thing I found, and I write about this in Political Truth a lot, that all the major events in our country since 1960, the official story doesn't hold up. The Kennedy assassination, Vietnam, Watergate, Iran-Contra, 9-11, Gulf War, Iraq War, Afghanistan War. The official stories are, are, are lies and bullshit. And uh, you know, when you start digging into it, you find out why these things happen. And uh, it is incumbent upon us as citizens to do this and find out. Well, I think that perhaps the single best comment in Kennedy assassination was made by Indira Gandhi, who was Prime Minister of India, and she was assassinated herself. She said, Kennedy died because he lost the support of his peers. So here's somebody who really knew governments, and uh, it was an inside job. Kennedy was fired, as somebody put it, by the military-industrial complex because he wouldn't do their bidding and invading Cuba and expanding the war in Vietnam and their belligerent things. And look what's happened to our country since then. We have all the results, fake wars and torture and terrible things that have happened, but we're still kind of trying to recover from that. It's, it's a long haul, and let's hope we can recover, but, you know, democracy took a serious blow on November 22nd, which is green, and may have ended our great experiment of democracy, but uh, maybe we, we can recover and rebuild it. Anyway. But thank you, Mike, for having me. I really appreciate your time and your interest and in, uh, your, your knowledge of the case. I appreciate it. Oh, of course. It was my pleasure. Thank you for your time, and, and uh, maybe we'll do it again sometime, and we can talk more about uh, film, and I can ask you about Orson Welles. That's a whole nother, that'll be a whole nother thing. But uh, um, thank you again, uh, Joe, and thank you everybody for watching. We will uh, see you later on this month with another JFK episode. Uh, I'm not going to say who it is, but it's a, uh, a documentary filmmaker who made a recent film about the assassination. So that will be interesting. So stay tuned, folks, and we'll see you.